good day to be indigenous. Get up, stand up. They are going to become more brutal. Courtney Cuff, Henny Cuff again. Because all the hippies were trying to be Indians anyway. They're going to become more repressive because it's a matter of dollars and their illusionary concepts of power. Hey, Victor. We must live in balance with the earth. And also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I am awake. Welcome to Native Roots Radio Presents I'm Awake, and I'm your host, Wakanja Hade. Hey, welcome to Native Roots Radio Presents I'm Awake, and I'm your host, Robert Pilot. We discuss local and national Native news and events, and as you know, Haley, Native issues are human issues, and human issues are Native issues. You're absolutely right, Jacob. This portion of the show is supported by Native American Community Development Institute in Minneapolis. Yes, it is. Hey, we're here with Derek, and Derek is... uh, I want you to introduce yourself, but you're also you're the manager of making of make making a voting a tradition. I can't read my own writing, but I know it's make voting a, a tradition. And what a great program that is! And uh, welcome. And you are on mute. Where's my mute cup? Oh, thank you up. for having me, me Gwich. Yeah, go ahead and introduce yourself. Oh, Jao Nung Benesi in the go. Muskazibing and Dunjabai Dash Gokapikong and Danungom, Mayangun and Dodem. Um, Southern Spirit Bird is what the spirits call me. Um, my people come from Bad River, uh, but I'm staying in Minneapolis today, part of the Wolf Clan. I'm very happy to be here. Awesome, Derek. And uh, you are the manager of Make Voting a Tradition, which is a great. Uh, it's a great saying. It's also a great activity. And uh, the last couple of cycles have really, uh, your organization's really helped uh, here in the state of Minnesota specifically. Uh, and I just got to give you a, a lot of kudos on that because it's, it's uh, every year we say this when it comes to election time, but it's one of the most important uh, elections in our lifetime. But I think they all are now, right? Yeah. They're all very important. Um, Our program specifically is a year-round program, so we realize the importance of our engagement each year in and out. Every day we're out there, we we want to build our Native voice out. And when I say that, I think of us as Native Americans, all of our cultural values are very similar across the entire country. And so in that way, when we vote, our votes are actually going to be very similar as well. So we, if we can all get together, we build power in that way. And when we vote, we can have a strong vote. Absolutely. And I know two cycles ago nationally, the native vote has been was very important in uh, making a lot of states blue. And we, uh, two cycles ago, we had uh, 14, 13 Native Americans running for office and 12 of them won. And so uh, getting the vote out there and getting people to feel comfortable because we know uh, Natives uh, especially don't want to be counted in the census and don't want to vote and want to, because of all the trauma in years past. Mm-hmm. That's one of our big obstacles is 
is gaining trust, um, building building trust with people like our organization. If we're going to put out trustable information and be a, a steady part of the community, put out that nice information, make sure everybody's well informed and up to date on what's really going on. Hopefully we can get to see a lot more of our native people in in those spaces. That's what that's what, what one of our goals is is to get people in those spaces. Yeah, and we're blessed here in Minnesota to have uh, our lieutenant governor, state senator, and uh, three other state representatives uh, as, as natives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful time. Uh, like I said, we're, we've been around now. It's our ninth year of the operation make voting a tradition and uh our principles are to stay politically active um, when we're out there and we're talking to people we can make this these talks we can make these talks a dinner table talk mm-hmm. and if i think if we can get to those dinner tables and start building that that power around the state it's going to help us out nationally as well Absolutely. And I think one of the things you just said earlier, too, is steady and consistency of your organization that tables, been around, answers questions, gives out groovy T-shirts, things like that. And um, that's so important, the consistency that your organization has. Yeah. Uh, Well, make voting a tradition is is uh, really out there. we're trying to stay out there. We we want to be out there every day if possible. We're running a a nice social media campaign. We are putting out lots of information lately here. Um, so when you talk about the NACTI, Native American Community Development Institute, our umbrella corporation, or excuse me, our umbrella organization, um, that's one of our goals is is to just make sure we're drawing our people into this process and helping to define that future for us. That That's the name of the game, you know, the long run. You know, we're still here um, in our next seven generations. Uh, that's the long run and appreciate your work and uh, Native American Community Development Institute in Minneapolis and Twin Cities. Uh, their work has just uh, been... Uh, uh, unmatched, unmatched here in the nation, I believe. Mm. Well, we say miigwech and padami of course, for that. We we think of your your work just as important. You're, we're working together here. We're working in partnership. And really, that's what I want to build out is, is a lot more partnerships. I want to be moving throughout the state and talking to all of our um, tribal nations. And, mm-hmm. and get together as much as we possibly can, because I think if if we can get us there to vote, if we can mm-hmm. get our native people there, we're we're all going to be we're all going to be heard. Yeah, and that's at the end of the day, that's what we really want. Exactly. You know, our sister uh, state, Wisconsin, and we're on twenty stations in Wisconsin right now. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's you can see the contrast uh, from representation uh, in the state of Minnesota as not having representation 
uh, in Wisconsin. Thank goodness uh, they have a, a Democratic governor, but you know you can only veto and do things so long. Yeah, yeah, it's it's important to have everybody in those offices. Um, it's in it, these elections in particular are really important. November seventh is a big day. We want everybody to show out. We want everybody to go to the Secretary of State's website. Check that website. There's a polling place finder. You pop your address in there, your zip code. They will show you where to vote and what, who's up, you know, which seats are up for election. Mm -hmm. um, everything is right there for you. It's very simple. It's it's not a hard process, and and that's one thing that we want to put out there is it's this is not a hard process. We we want to be involved so we can all get things changed. You know, uh, it's a, a an election here in St. Paul uh, for city council, school board, and we can't emphasize enough how important these people are to get the right people elected, especially what's happened uh, to our nation in the last six years, meaning the United States, with people that are infiltrating, that have uh, are bad actors and are, are not good for our communities, but also the nation, uh, being, meaning the Yeah, and it, it does start in those, those state seats. When you talk about services for the school, when you talk about services out there in the community, um, for police, um, policing, everything is is done at, at those state levels. Super important to get out there and vote. Make sure you get out there. If you aren't registered, get out, get pre-registered. November seventh is coming. We want you to help make voting a tradition. Derek, how can uh, we got thirty seconds left? How can uh, anybody get a hold of your organization? You can check our website, nacdi.org. Lots of information on there. You can always come on down to Powell Grounds also. Oh, uh, you know we'll be there. Yes. <laughs> hey, thanks so much, Derek. Uh, making uh, Make voting a tradition is uh, the way we got to do it. Thank you so much for stopping in. And everyone, and get out and vote. And if you ne need any information about voting, you know, Secretary of State, Make Voting a Tradition uh, website, uh, seek them out. They'll help you any way they can. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay with us. Ho! If the statistics say that one in three Native women and one in six Native men have experienced sexual assault in their lifetime, it means our whole community is affected by sexual violence. One is too many. Don't stand by. Stand up. Don't engage in acts of sexual violence and shut down the dirty jokes, the gossip, the victim blaming and shaming. As a community, we can change the way we respond. Contact the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition to attend a workshop to learn more. Sponsored by the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition. Be a vaccinative. As the fall season continues, new COVID-19 variants threaten the health of not just you, but our elders as well. These new variants might even evade previous vaccines. That's why it's important to stay up to date. The newly authorized vaccines target current variants effectively and are FDA approved for ages six months and older. But there is an important note. These are the first COVID vaccines to be commercialized, which means there may be costs associated with them. 
Speak with your health insurer about your coverage before scheduling an appointment to avoid a surprise bill. For those without health insurance, help is available. Ask your health clinic about options or visit vaccines.gov for free locations. Getting vaccinated protects you from severe disease. Don't put yourself or elders at risk. So be a vaccinative and protect our community. You can visit vaccines.gov for free vaccine locations. This message is brought to you in partnership with the Minnesota Department of Health. Mental health and substance use disorders are complex, stigmatizing, and can be overwhelming issues for families to face. Finding the right diagnosis and care can sometimes feel impossible, especially when you don't know where to start looking. Hazelden Betty Ford understands what your family is going through. Hazelden Betty Ford's patient access team will direct you towards a clear path forward in network with most insurances. This message is brought to you by Hazelden Betty Ford, the Minnesota Broadcasters Association, and this station. You're listening to Native Roots Radio. This is Spirit from Reservation Dogs. Get up and listen. This portion of the show is supported by the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition. Hey, producer Haley Cherry with you now. I want to quickly introduce a couple special encore segments from John Green Deer. John is currently the health and wellness coordinator at Ho-Chunk Healthcare Center in Wisconsin and is an enrolled member of Ho-Chunk Nation. So take it away, John. My name is John Green Deer. I am once again excited to send each of you a warm greeting. Also excited to be on the radio. This is kind of cool. Um, so a lot of people don't know this. I'm actually a licensed ham radio operator. Yep. Let that sink in. KD9ETK is my call. But it has nothing to do with me being on the radio. So it's actually quite useless information. So I <laughs> thought it was kind of cool, but it'll get more relevant from here. I promise. Um, uh, today we get to talk about something a little bit more in my wheelhouse. Uh, I am the executive director of heritage preservation for the Ho-Chunk Nation, which um, is a pretty expansive title. But if you look at what it covers, that's even more broad. I always ask folks, you know, what do you think of when you, when you hear heritage preservation? And, you know, some folks, the response is, you know, um, powwows, drums, songs, music, Feathers, regalia, you know, dances. Um, others, you know, might be more on the naturalist side of the spectrum and say, well, it, all the things that predate, you know, pre-colonial contact, you know, and our our rivers, our our land, our mountains, our our you know, forests, vegetation, animals, all these things that you know, those are the things we need to preserve. You know, others, you know, look at it from a more scholarly point of view in terms of the historical context or political, you know, and um, it's it's about sovereignty. It's about your legal disposition as, as a nation. It's what you can do to self-govern. Uh, so, you know, so what is it? It's all of those and, and more. And even nowadays, uh, preservation really is synonymous with everything that falls under, quote, culture. So we have a lot of things that... Um, uh, that we do oversee. Now, as a preservationist, those are very distinct. Culture being something that you can't really kill or anything like that. It's it's a part of your daily life. Uh, how you brush your teeth, when you go to school, who gets the TV first, all that, all that stuff is a part of your culture. Your home has one, your work has one, your school, your church. 
Um, but more importantly, you know, um, we look at preserving our heritage. And these are things that probably weren't intended to change, like, you know, your songs, your stories, you know, your your fundamental beliefs, principles, family, clan colors, those types of things. And so those are um, kind of more in the area. And while it does seem like they, they do overlap because they do, uh, we do try to be more um, distinctive to focus on some of those elements that might be in danger of being lost. So um, when I started as the executive director uh, for heritage preservation, I thought like I was going to be like zapped down, you know, with a bag over my head and I'm going to go down seven flights into this, you know, dark eerie area where we had this big giant massive storage unit of all of our songs and stories and everything that defined us historically. And, um, you know, it, it was not a scene out of the X-Files by any means. It, it, we, we don't have all that stuff. Uh, yes, there are recordings. Yes, there are photographs. Yes, there are. But there certainly isn't a place where you can just walk into it and, and, you know, plug in your USB and just fill your whole world up with uh, history and, and, and knowledge. We are remnants of uh, an oral tradition of, of, of vastly, um, you know, substantive oral tradition of songs and stories and things that identify you as a family. And, you know, I'd mentioned before in a previous show that, you know, a lot of these things were severed, not, you know, just simply by boarding schools, but, you know, a lot of, you know, forces in in Westernization that have really changed our daily culture. You know, today we, we can't say we are you know, um, living the life of those of us and our, our people in the past, you know, we're too, we're too busy working two jobs just to be broke and, and, you know, getting our kids off to school so we can be conveniently late for work and probably unwrapping more meals than we should be, you know, so there are, <laughs> there's just, you know, um, certain things that lifestyles that we have now that, you know, probably don't synchronize with, you know, the people that we came from who, really built their life or their way of life, which Ho-Chunks will call Woshka, around simplicity, you know, food, water, shelter, things that we kind of take for granted nowadays. But if we were ever uh, forced to uh, go back to that, uh, there's probably a good chance we'd have a, a bit of a struggle. Yes, we could eat deer if you can get one or catch fish if you can catch one or make nets or make hooks. You know, we didn't we didn't have necessarily the 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 um obligation to learn survival skills you know that's what they would be for us today but to them it was just simply living so (laughs) i don't know how long it would take us to learn today but you know back then that that way of life wasn't something you learned in a weekday or you know, years, um, or even a lifetime. It took, it took many lifetimes. You know, we go back, you know, thousands and thousands of years and, you know, our oral tradition has us, you know, placed back into the red banks of the green Bay, but, you know, we don't really know when that, that was, you know, we can certainly, you know, use science to determine, you know, when, you know, the human existence took place into this area, but we can't really verify, um, you know, lean too heavily on archaeology or belief system. We just have to accept the fact that we we don't know. And if we were meant to know, we would. Um, But I can say that, you know, when we start going back to, um, you know, our history, and, you know, I, I hate to surprise everyone, but history doesn't start when 
a white guy sets foot on a, a piece of earth. You know, a lot of times we do that when we say, we're going to talk about history. Well, it's going to be George Washington or Ben Franklin or Christopher Columbus. And, you know, no. <laughs> history starts, you know, way before that, you know, before we can even think of. And so, um, you know, we, we discipline ourselves to make sure that, you know, we don't think in that Western manner. Uh, this is how and who we are. So to give you a, a scale uh, of that, you know, one of the exercises that, you know, we'll, we'll provide in, in making sure people understand the heritage of, of and where we are, uh, we, we pull this 50-foot rope out uh, and have the, the children kind of hold that as far out as they can. And that rope, in this context, only represents 14,000 years, um, you know, where, where we're dated back to at least, you know, on the science end of things. But we introduce, you know, things like, uh, you know, the, the, the projectile points and some of the stone tools all the way. You know, these are the historic areas where they, you know, prehistoric areas where they didn't have, you know, uh, recording devices or, or written languages, uh, those types of things. And people will actually get a chance to see the scale of this because, you know, every foot of that rope represents about approximately 280 years which means that, you know, uh, if you went two feet, you've already passed the um, arrival of Columbus to the Americas, you know. And so you have to think back from those 48 feet. Oh, my God, there there was a lot of time between then and now. Uh, we are not the first. Um, uh, we're not fresh off the boat here. We, we've been here for such a long time. And the reason why we have um, made it to this day is because of those elements of our heritage. So uh, making sure that uh, those things are passed down to uh, our folks is, is probably our biggest mission to make sure that there's a connection there. And there is. And that's, that's the amazing thing about it is, you know, these things that, that, you know, we credit our ancestors do. We have, we have those things. We never lost them. Uh, we may not have to engage those, but there are certain things that, you know, we do in heritage preservation and cultural resources and language that, that really show that that connection is there and it's as strong as it's ever been before. So whenever we learn how to say our name and our language and use it, whenever we learn how to uh, craft an item uh, that has some utility and we see people using it, it's there. So, um, you know, I don't, you know, it, it doesn't take long for people to realize I get really amped up on on things like this. But, you know, this this connection that we have, you know, we they can't they can't take that away from us. That's who we are. We 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 are these people that, you know, that that they try to separate um, us from. So, uh, you know, heritage preservation is really about making sure that we have a strong connection and a strong identity with who we are, because that really is what determines our success in in the modern Western world. And it's what determined our success in the prehistoric times as well. So um, heritage preservation does include a lot. And, you know, I'm always discouraged because, you know, I don't know the things that people come to ask me or, you know, the people I work with, they say the same thing. We don't know everything. Um, we, we'd like to be able to help. But, you know, one of the things that they talk about, you know, in, in our way of life, and I, and I hope I don't butcher this too much, but, you know, when they say that, you know, we're not doing this alone. That's, you know, we don't have this all by ourselves. It's, it's with our group, our family, our clan. 
that we can all do this. And, you know, this is knowledge that, you know, I think is really important that <laughs> no one person uh, knows all of this, but we all know a little bit. And when we come together, that's how we come to know everything. You know, we can't do it all ourselves, but if everyone does a little bit, then it can get done. And so, you know, these are things that really, you know, lean on heavily and making sure that the that the circle, the, the group is, is wider and there's more people in there rather than just a small number of people that are, you know, carrying that burden um, and trying to carry this on because that's never going to work. So, um, so it really is about being together. It's really about working together, um, sharing together. And, you know, the, the best way to do it is to look at our brothers and sisters as, you know, what they are. They're our family. And so together, that's what defines who we are. And that's going to define what the success of heritage preservation is. So again, I want to thank everyone for allowing me to share just, you know, a 10,000 foot view of what heritage preservation is and let you know that um, no matter what we're asked, um, we may not have an answer, but the minute, you know, we're done talking, we're thinking of how to find that answer for each of you. So again, thank you. We got to take a quick break, but stay with us. You're listening to Native Roots Radio. Minnesota has the only original wolf population in the continental United States. And 80% of Minnesotans believe the wolf should be protected. Howling for Wolves is asking Minnesotans to respect our true wildlife manager, the wolf. Their survival is critical to our ecosystems, our communities, and even our economy. As highly intelligent animals with strong social bonds, Minnesota wolves deserve to be protected and admired. Learn more at howlingforwolves.org. Let's Let's live live and and let howl. howl. In this critical time for Indian country, voting is crucial to protecting the land, water, and communities. Voting creates collective power in securing our planet's future amid climate chaos. Engage in personal conversations with loved ones to ensure they are making informed voting choices. Register to vote. And don't forget that 16- and 17-year-olds can pre-register to vote in Minnesota. NACTI is asking us to stand together and make voting a tradition. Go to NACTI.org to learn more and make your pledge to vote. It's time to experience the amazing flavors of EatLocalMinnesota.com. It's your key to unlocking the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities. Latunji's Palette is celebrating over five years in business. At Latunji's Palette, you'll feel the connection of food and community. Located at 1400 Park Avenue South, you'll find a delicious selection of gourmet pastries, sandwiches, and drinks. Plus, look for their famous peach cobbler and other gourmet goodies at Eastside Food Co-op, Hy-Vee, Lunds and Byerly's, North Market, and more. Built with purpose, fortified with love. That's Latunji's Palette. If you're craving barbecue, then don't drive too fast or you will miss Scott Jamama's Hot Barbecue, located at 3 West Diamond Lake Road in Minneapolis. Scott Jamama's offers mouth-watering baby back ribs, grilled chicken, and half-pound pulled pork sandwiches. The potato salad, spicy baked beans, and twice-baked potatoes should not be missed. More details at scottjamamas.com. When a drunk driver hit my car, the structural integrity and safety features of my Toyota Sienna saved my life. I will always own one. 
That's it. That's the ad. I don't think I need to add anything else, but I'll gladly mention their sales team is attentive and friendly. Their service department is the best in the state and their vehicles. You can put a lot of faith in the quality and safety of a Toyota vehicle. The structural integrity and safety features of my Toyota Sienna saved my life. I will always own one. That says it all. Rudy Luther Toyota, five miles west of Minneapolis on 394. Hey, it's Tom. Going solar is a great way to save on energy costs. By using the sun to power your house, you can feel good about an investment that will last for years. All Energy Solar is a locally trusted turnkey solar installer that's been around since 2009. They provide custom designs and quality installations of solar panel systems that work for your energy needs. One of the best parts about going solar is it's an investment that can pay for itself. Your system can pay back 100% of the installation cost in as little as eight years. Plus, a system from All Energy Solar can pay back over 300% of its cost over its lifetime. There's also many tax incentives and rebates available, and the experts at All Energy Solar can walk you through the entire process to make sure you're saving as much as possible. So go green, both financially and environmentally, with All Energy Solar. Get a free, no-obligation assessment from All Energy Solar by calling 800-620-3370 or visiting allenergysolar.com. Hi, I'm Jane Fonda, and you're listening to Native Roots Radio. To everyone out there, I greet you again. It's an um, amazing opportunity to share a little bit with you for all the listeners at Native Roots Radio and the hosts. Um, my name is Mashuska, or as some people in, in my country always say, my tax-paying name is John Greendeer. Not long ago, I was asked to uh, supplement the show with a little bit of uh, Ho-Chunk history, a little culture, a little bit of um, knowledge about the government. Uh, I don't know why they asked me to do that. Uh, Sometimes it can be a difficult task because uh, the nature of the subject of what you're speaking about can be precarious because a lot of these things derive from oral tradition. And as we know, uh, families and people hear things a little bit different. So the nice thing about the Ho-Chunk community is we understand that. So we know that there's going to be variations in what we heard. And a lot of times in other cultures, uh, difference divides people. Um, It's interesting that, you know, difference actually brings us together because we all bring a little bit to the table to have a lot. And so that's part of uh, the unique nature of the Ho-Chunk culture. So just recently I returned from Michigan. I got had a chance to visit the Indigenous Food Summit there. And it was the first time I did that. I haven't gone. As, as a matter of fact, this is something that happens annually. And I'm either busy or don't have enough money. And all my friends are going and all the cool people are over there. And they're trading seeds and they're they're learning how to cook foods. And so I miss it. And this time I did not. <laughs> so uh, I'm coming back a little bit high on the, uh, on the um, uh, elation of uh, culinary arts in indigenous country, the use of indigenous and aboriginal food sources so uh these folks are absolutely amazing they they are so brilliant and it reminds me um uh, of our times about now you know past the equinox that you know our new year is upon us and so for those who follow the traditional way of life uh, our spring feasts are beginning which is probably less about the feast and more about the families and the clans coming together to bring a little bit so that they can share with um, the other clans and families out there. So right now, even today, we are 
uh, celebrating a, a spring feast, and I'll get to attend and uh, listen to some of their stories, hear their songs. So these are um, uh, parts of our culture that we are very proud of, and they're they're not out there on on the table and in in front, and you don't see Facebook posts about them too much in social media. They're not in our newsletter. They're not in the local paper. Um, this is just a way of life. That's really what it is. It isn't. Um, I wouldn't write a story about me brushing my teeth. It's just something I do. And so this is this is something that a lot of Ho Chunks do. And you know, I, I I wish more had a chance to learn about it. But it's also a way of life that doesn't go out recruiting people or trying to convert people to a a, a manner of living. It's just there, and it's there for everyone. Everyone has a place there. So I'm really excited about that. This is a busy time of year for our um, earth clans. So our deer, our buffalo, our elk, and you know our, our leaders, our, our um, bears. So um, they're waking up right now, and you know we're tending to the ground. We're, you know after a winter is always a good time to see um, what our responsibility is to our environment because things are starting to grow. Things are starting to remind us of, of how lush our natural world really is and what we have to do to protect it. And so these are our responsibilities to do as uh, Earth Clan people. And this goes beyond, you know, not buying straws or walking to work or putting your aluminum cans in the recycling. Uh, this actually involves reminding us to create a lifestyle around really thinking about our natural surroundings or as Jaji Gre Kumani says, you know, um, making sure that the rights of nature are ensured. And we have the sovereign authority to make sure that that's enforced. And I, you know, we've always had it. So I don't want anyone to think that we inherited it by some act of Congress or some treaty. We have always retained our sovereign authority. So that's one of the most important things to remember. We have always had organization as a community, as a social group, uh, as a clan system. Uh, we had roles uh, in our gender, in our ages. And so these are the things that helped us organize. And that's one of the things I was excited to talk about. Um, <clears throat> I am a you know political science graduate, public administration and policy. So some of these things kind of in intrigue me on one end because it really is uh, a unique uh, juxtaposition to have a very uh, culturally social organization of a people and then to move them on to a different model of, of governance. Now, keep in mind that even the model of governance that we have isn't really European. Uh, this this was not a creation of of the um, uh, matriarch of, of England or anything else. This was, this was uh, derived by some of the uh, folks out, the indigenous people out in the East. So um, it's really important to remember that too, because uh, often is the case, uh, people say, well, this is our government, it's better. No, it's not. <laughs> this or this organization as a governance uh, was actually from a model of the um, Iroquois Confederacy. So so uh, let's not take credit uh, where you don't have it. So we go back to the uh, uh, original uh, groups. And, and, you know, depending on what time period you jump in in Ho-Chunk history, you're probably going to have a different profile because of primarily demographics. But the social organization, the language uh, still remained a part of the heritage and, and uh, somewhat static and unchanged. So um, uh, when we 
uh, organized and this is you know post the boarding school area well we kind of still have a boarding school uh, uh, mentality in some in some regard but um, uh, we we were disenfranchised we were uh, uh, chased out we had warfare we held our ground and and so you know we didn't have much of a of a social organization in terms of being able to provide our own sustenance so that our agri fields or, or hunting lands, fishing, trapping, gathering, uh, those things were now uh, a bit frustrated by a, a series of land claims that were taking place. Now, remember, this, the state had just started in 1848, uh, and later on, the counties, uh, through their efforts, began to build their nest eggs through taxation and a lot of the land that was transferred and promised from the federal government to Ho-Chunks in the form of allotments or homesteads were um, uh, looked at upon counties as taxable moments. And therefore, a lot of these uh, pieces of property or parcels, if they weren't sold or uh, taken or negotiated out of, were um, subject to uh, tax that eventually went into default and foreclosure. So, you know, over a period of time, much of the land that was originally granted prior to the them setting that into a trust status uh, was lost. And so, and the, and the counties wear this, they, they have this, they, their, their acquisition of land is, um, is, you know, nefarious. It, you know, a lot of times the, any agreements that took place were done with um, what were called trustees of certain villages, encampments, or families. And these trustees, uh, it didn't take them long to figure out that they never even had to meet with their own clients to actually sign off for them and have that enforceable either by the you know developing state uh, administrators or the uh, U.S. Army. And so, you know, one of my jajis says, you can't steal land. You can't pick it up and walk around and, and hide it somewhere. It's going to stay there. You know, so really what this is, is a, is a paper war, uh, a title, a deed, um, certification of ownership. So uh, he hit the nail on the head because he's right. Uh, the land actually isn't going anywhere, but um, the ownership or the documentation, the new documentation now uh, actually dictates who um, does have ownership over that property. And so that's kind of where the battles really took place. And, and as you can imagine, you know, even today, tribes have uh, a difficult time having legal representation on a lot of cases because they don't have the resources to do that. You can imagine them, you know, about a hundred years ago uh, with this same problem, having no chance of having any type of uh, representation on a lot of these early land claims. Now, I know I'm glossing over a lot of history, but, you know, ultimately the federal government, you know, realized that there was no way to sustain any tribes without having the designation of trust status. And so they began, you know, through acts of Congress designating properties. And, and eventually in 1934, when they passed the Indian Reorganization Act, you know, bequeathed some power upon the Secretary of Interior to take land into trust for the um, benefit of, of tribes to hold uh, by the federal government. And so um, through this designation, uh, uh, all kinds of things have to happen. Um, there, there was also um, from the land that the tribes did have or did um, receive from the government, they had to have um, some sort of governance to it. And, and there wasn't, you know, airship to properties, you know, meant that sometimes down through the generations that that number could grow increasingly to hundreds just for a small 40 acre uh, a property. And in order for any type of easement or any type of negotiation to take place, you had to have 
over 50% of the heirs to agree. Now, this is a problem, especially if you're the federal government. And so the only way to actually see a, a benefit of this is to consolidate that land into one singular owner. So these preempts uh, our own Indian um, Land Consolidation Act, or ILCA, which is basically an effort to take land ha that has a number of heirs to it and have them receive payment at maybe fair market value to give up their share and then give that over to their, their governing tribe. So this has happened and still continues to happen. Um, there's pros and cons to it. Obviously, as you know, um, the years go on, your interest in that property is always going to diminish. And so the, the value of that is going to be small. In order for you to do anything, you're going to have to get 50% or more to dictate what happens on that land. So eventually over time, it's, it's probably you know more spam than anything. At least with this, you not only receive financial compensation for your property, but you also uh, it also goes to your governing tribe as well. And so that was, was the hope of taking place. Unfortunately, the singular owner didn't exist. There were, there were not a lot of official tribal governments. And so in 1934, when they passed the act, they knew that that act required the U.S. government to send out sentinels to help tribes help, <laughs> uh, tribes build governing councils. So this is when a lot of the governments formed. Uh, so everyone, thank you everyone and have a wonderful day and get outside. Ah, yes. Get outside, everyone. The sun is shining here in the Twin Cities. Uh, if you are just tuning in, we just heard from a, a couple segments from the best of from John Greendeer. And John was talking about the great uh, Ho-Chunk Nation out in Wisconsin, where Robert is an enrolled member, and I myself am a descendant. So we have to actually take a quick break here. But up next, we have a brand new Sacred Animals Fun Fact Friday segment from Humane Policy Advocate Wendy Pilot. Please stay with us. You're listening to Native Roots Radio Presents I'm Awake. Back to school season is here. And while this is an exciting time for parents, kids, and educators, let's not forget how far we've come in our battle against COVID-19. We're in a better place, but COVID-19 is still here, and we need to continue to help protect our communities. With the flurry of new schedules and classrooms, let's not overlook the fundamentals of staying safe. Wash your hands regularly and watch for any symptoms like fever, chills, a cough, or shortness of breath. Should you or someone you know have COVID-19 symptoms, stay home and get tested. Find more tips on continuing to be safe at health.state.mn.us. Let's have this back-to-school season be a time of renewed commitment to our collective health and brighter future for our Native communities. Again, find more tips on continuing to be safe at health.state.mn.us. This message is brought to you in partnership with the Minnesota Department of Health. 
Hi, I'm Scott Shamblot from Shamblot Family Dentistry. We're the fear-free, shame-free dental office. If you're having a dental emergency, we'll try and get you in the same day you call because we don't like to see anyone in pain. And we'll help you get through every appointment in the most pain-free way possible. As my daughter Rachel says, If you don't see my dad, please see another dentist. Take care of your teeth because they're the only ones you get. Shamblot Family Dentistry in Hopkins and St. Paul. Find them online at shamblotfamilydentistry.com or call 1-800-FIX-MY-TEETH. Seward Co-op is now offering convenient self-serve and prepackaged hot options and salad bars at both the Franklin and Friendship stores. Breakfast items available daily until 11 a.m. and brunch served all day every Sunday. Their weekly lunch and dinner menus highlight cuisines from around the world. They offer vegan, vegetarian, and gluten-free options daily. 95% of the ingredients used are organic from small-scale, local community food producers whenever possible. More at seward.coop. This is uh, Leonard Peltier. I am in uh, Colvin 1, U.S. Penitentiary, and I'm listening to Native Roots Radio. And we're back to Native Roots Radio presents I'm Awake, and this is Robert Pilot. This portion of the show is supported by Howling for Wolves, protecting wolves for future generations. Hey, just before the break, we were listening to John Green Deer of the Great Ho-Chunk Nation in Wisconsin. But it's Friday here, and we're winding down the show. So humane policy advocate Wendy Pilot with the United States Humane Society has a brand new Fun Fact Friday sacred animal segment for us today. So please take it away, Wendy. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Haley. Hey, everybody. My name is Hanaji Hihani. That means cares for them. I was given that name by my Dega Curtis. Curtis goes by Mashke Hanajinga, which means walks on white clouds. I'm a humane policy volunteer leader for the Humane Society of the United States, and I work on animal issues at the local and state level. And as always, it is my pleasure to do that. Today is Friday, so happy Friday. Fun fact, Friday today. And just the other day, I was talking about how the cold weather is here already. Too fast for me. I feel like we should still be in fall. Not even all the leaves are off the trees yet. And we already had 2.7 inches of snow in MSP Airport, which is the official uh, snow total for us. And it's just really just cold too fast for me. But anyway, um, every winter, Robert and I get a little visitor in our yard, a little possum. And I'm always uh, shocked to see the possum, but also really happy. And I don't see the possum during the summer, but they do come around our yard in the winter. I think one uh, lives under our deck and comes out and will eat like the seeds and things that I throw out in the backyard if I'm cooking in the kitchen kitchen and like chopping up some broccoli or vegetables. I always throw them out the scraps. So I always see them, the possums, I see raccoons, the squirrels, they'll come around, the rabbits, they'll come around and eat the scraps that I throw out in the backyard. Um, instead of a compost, that's what we have, right? Uh, but today I have some fun facts about possums, which I'm really happy to share. I love these little animals. 
And I did think about the possums because just the other day on my Facebook feed was a video. And what it was was a, a wildlife camera that captured a possum that was like sitting up on a a log, a tall log, and it was helping a deer by picking ticks off his face. And it's just like a really cute little video. You could just go on, I think it's on YouTube, and just uh, type in uh, possum eating deer ticks off uh, off of a deer. And it's a cute little video of this little possum. And the deer is like bending down and letting the possum um, pick the little ticks off the face off his face so because we know uh uh possums do eat a lot of uh ticks so that's a good thing that they do um and in the winter i think that they come around in our yard because i said before one um lives under our deck and stays warm um uh, but their fur they their fur does not provide much insulation from the cold um they're typically uh they typically spend the winter in dens that are dry sheltered and safe and possums are vulnerable to frostbite on their hairless tails ears and toes so they often it's called hole up during extremely uh, cold spells, and their dens may be in hollow logs or trees. Uh, last year, I built a little uh, shelter for the, the animals that come in the backyard. We have a stand-up garden. It's like four feet tall, and it, I just plant pollinator plants in there, so we have lots of bees and butterflies and hummingbirds that come around. Uh, but in the winter, what I did last year was I covered it with a tarp, and then underneath, I put a uh, heated mat, a uh, heated mat. I plugged it in so it was warm, and then I threw some like wood shaving over it, so uh, I would look out there and I would see like the little possum's head sticking out. So I know that animals did use it as a, a shelter. I don't know if they stayed in there all the time, but it probably was um, warm and cozy in there uh, when it gets to be, you know, tw 20 below zero and the wind's blowing out there. Um, but uh, so here we're talking about possums and I just have a some fun facts about them. They have 50 teeth more than any other mammal in North America, according to the Wildlife Illinois. They also have tails that are often compared to those of rats. And like rats, their tails are prehensile. And what that means is that they can be used to help them balance and climb. And also that it's their tails are capable of grasping objects. I didn't know that. And they also have superpowers. Possums aren't superheroes like Batman and Spider-Man, but they do have something of a superpower that's beneficial to their survival. They are immune to the venom inflicted by honeybees, scorpions, and rattlesnakes, among other venomous animals. They're also unaffected by toxins such as botulism, according to the National Wildlife Federation. In addition, possums rarely contract rabies, so you don't have to be worried about getting bit by them, and they do rarely, rarely bite. 
because their normal body temperature, they don't get rabies because their normal body temperature is too low for the virus to survive, and they only rarely contract Lyme disease from tick bites. Uh, they are immune to the effects of toxins and venoms because of a neutralizing factor in their blood. This may be helpful to humans down the road because scientists are studying it uh, for the use of creating anti-venom. So that's really cool. Also, you know how they say playing possum? That is really a true thing. Possums do this, but they don't do it volu- they don't do it voluntarily. So they don't think about like, oh my gosh, I'm really scared, and now what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna faint. It's a literal, it's a physiological thing that happens to them, like when a human faints. So a human faints, they have no control over it, right? The faint the the human just faints. So the same thing happens to a, a possum. He gets really, really scared and then has and then just faints. So that's really cute. And that's according to the San Diego Zoo. They reported that. They are America's only marsable. Uh, when you think of marsables, some of the well-known inhabitants of Australia uh, is a marsable. So a marsable is a mammal who has a pouch and that their animals, their young stay in the pouch and um, possums are in North America are the only marsable. Baby possums are like preemies. Like all baby marsables, baby possums are called joeys, and those pouches that the marsables are so known, uh, so well known for are a key part of the joey's development. Female possums are only pregnant for 13 days before giving birth to babies that are as small as honeybees. That's what the San Diego Zoo reports. Immediately after birth, the joeys will crawl into their mother's pouch where they continue to develop because of their small size. Not all the joeys will survive. While litters can be as large as 20, the average surviving litter size is about 8 Joeys will stay in their mother's uh, fur-lined pouch for about two months, but even afterwards, they stick close to their moms for a while because the age um, between the age of two months and four months, the joeys will not be in the pouch full-time, but they are still dependent on their mothers for food and shelter. It's during this time when you may see the young possums engaging in all that too cute behavior of riding around on their mother's back. After about 100 days, the joeys are able to survive on their own. So this is really a very cute thing. I love possums and our possum will be happening, hopefully coming soon. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Haley. Hey, thanks, Wendy. As always, you have been listening to Native Roots Radio presents I'm Awake. We'll be back next Monday at 5 p.m. Have a great weekend, everyone. We are the next generation. We are still here. Free Leonard Peltier now. I've been driving in my Indian car To the pound of the wheels drumming in my brain My dash is dusty, my plates are expired 
her up to serve. Let me explain. I got to make it to a powwow tonight. I'll be singing for.